Hello, welcome to another episode of Freaking Out About Opening Day with Randy Freaking, the podcast about the history and celebrations of Cincinnati's most revered non-religious holiday. Today, we are honored to have John Fay as our special guest. John is one of Cincinnati's longest-running sports writers, having covered the Cincinnati Reds for the Cincinnati Enquirer for 15 years, from 2000 until 2015, when he tried to retire, but he soon joined WCPO.com Sports. He continued his Twitter account with 43,000 followers, and then in 2018, he returned to cover the Reds again for the Enquirer. John has 38 years of experience writing about tri-state sports, mostly the Reds. John regularly appeared with Marty Brenneman, a.k.a. the Hall of Famer, during the second inning of Reds broadcasts when Marty would invite local sports writers to share their insight into the Reds. Marty often said he was struck dumb by John's words of wisdom. John... Welcome to Freaking Out About Opening Day. Thanks, Randy. Hey, John, before we talk about Red's Opening Day in particular, tell us a little bit about your background. Well, I'm a born and raised Cincinnatian, a West Sider. I went to Elder High School and I uh, married a Seton girl, so I'm, I'm a walking cliche. Um, the West Side's the best side. Yeah, I uh you know, I went to Elder High School, and uh, I wasn't very good at sports, but um, my junior year, I started working at the, the school paper, and kind of that started my path. Uh, I interned in the Enquirer, went to the University of Dayton, worked at the paper there, and I pretty much been at the Enquirer. I worked in Middletown for a little while, but I've been at the Enquirer pretty much since uh, 1981, except for that little, that little break. Started out covering high schools on a part-time basis. I covered UC, covered the Bengals as a backup guy. And um, in 2000, uh, they were looking at making a change. And uh, they put me on the beat at, at the midway point. Actually, it was 2001. And I thought, you know, it was, was going to be a, you know, a temporary thing. But uh, after the season, they were looking for someone. And I thought, you know, I, let me try it for a year because I, they thought it worked out well and I enjoyed it more than I thought I would have. And uh, I've just been on ever since for a while. It was a year to year basis, but then I, I, I grew into it. I, you know, I, I think when I was starting in journalism, I, I never imagined myself covering baseball because of the, the travel and just the, the commitment it is. And, and once I got into it, I, I just really enjoyed the daily thing. And it's just, uh, you're not part of the team, but you're, you're part of the traveling party and you, you develop these relationships. And it was just a, it's, it's been a, a, a dream job for all these years. And I, I, you never get tired of it because it's a, a daily thing and there, you never know what's going to happen, but it, it, there's always something interesting that happens. Sounds like a great job uh, to me. Hey, hey, John, we call you a beat writer. What does that mean? And where did that term come from? You know, I, 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 I'm not exactly sure. I think it's along the same lines as a beat cop where you kind of follow the, the, the daily, uh, happenings. Um, and I mean, it, it means a lot. It's a lot different today than it was when I started. When, when I started, 
even even on the Reds beat, the only thing I wrote for was the paper. So you had a about a midnight deadline, um, and you you couldn't get anything published or anything out there really in, in, until the next day, uh, unless you appeared on a radio show or the the second anything. I wasn't even doing that then. So um, now it's 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 a twenty four seven seven day a week thing mm-hmm. where if if you find out something, it it's up on the on the internet within minutes uh, a lot right. of times in, in, in Twitter is another evolution of that where if you, if you know something you tweet it first and then you, you write it and get it posted. So it, it's a much a more immediate thing. And, um, you know, that, that took some adjusting, but I, I think, um, for an older guy, I, I, I fell into that and kind of learned how to do it. I mean, at one time, I had a blog and, and things like that. That's kind of gone by the wayside. The blogs have kind of gone out of uh, fashion because pretty much everything you do is immediately posted. And um, that's just the way it's worked. But I, I think it, as far as covering a beat, you're responsible for everything that happens on with that team. Uh, you have columnists that write uh, opinions. And uh, a good friend of mine who – I. I started out with uh, just a backup bangle writer to Jack Brennan, who later became the, the media relations guy there, said there, there's a big difference between covering a team and writing about a team. When, when you're covering a team, you're real, pretty much responsible for everything that happens. Um, and, and these jobs have become two-man deals. I, I work closely with Bobby Nightingale, who came in kind of is uh, a co-beat thing. I we did that with uh, we started that with a uh, Trent Rosencrans, and um, it, it's kind of I think almost all papers have have two guys because it's just a, it's it's just such an all-consuming job. Well, it sounds pretty twenty-four to seven almost. Without you don't have the deadline anymore. You had to I guess you back in the day you had to get your copy in by midnight. Probably have to type it out or something. Yeah, well, pretty much. I mean, way back we used the old, uh, we called them trash 80s from Radio Shack. That was kind of the first <laughs> mobile computer, which uh, which had about as, you know, it could store about eight stories. So, uh, yeah, you know, one of the, the, the cell phones were a great invention for sports writers because you used to have to sit home and wait for the phone to ring. You make calls and have to pretty, I mean, it's, it's like that with a lot of things, but um, now you can get out and about and, and get on with your day and, and, and still work the beetle um, and, and people can return your phone calls. But yeah, it was, uh, you know, it, you would get your, some of your stuff in earlier, but you could go to midnight. It's always been with, with the Enquirer, the, the way it's set up, we have a Kentucky edition and then uh, an edition that, at, at one time went outside 275. So th- those deadlines were earlier, but we could get in things still up till about midnight uh, for the final game stories. And, you know, back when I started, we were even getting in West Coast games, but deadlines have changed a lot <laughs> over the years right. with uh, newspapers. Well, hey, let's talk a little bit about opening day. You're a West Sider. You grew up here. When did you first experience opening day in Cincinnati? It, you always followed it or watched it on TV or, or whatever. But I think the, the first, I was thinking about this, the first opening day I ever went to was when I was working at the Enquirer. I wasn't doing the Reds, obviously, but I went in as a fan with a friend and it snowed. I, I, 
I was kind of going through your book looking and I couldn't pinpoint the date, but it had to be in the late eighties, I think, or early. Yeah. 90s. I think that's right. Mid, mid eighties. Uh, there was a yeah, snow, yeah. snow issue in like, uh, 1977, but then we had another one in the mid eighties. So this was, you're out of college, you're working for the Enquirer and you just went down to the parade. You know, I don't, I don't know if we went to the parade, but we went, we went to the game and I don't think the game was delayed a great deal or anything, but it, it, the, the one thing that struck me it was the first time I tried to go to opening day and the parking is just unbelievable because you have at that time it was on a Monday, which it, it's a regular business day for a lot of people. And the parking downtown was just incredible because that, that was where obviously the riverfront days when you know, they sell 55,000 tickets and then you have a business day. So it was a, yeah, you can forget about parking your car. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty <laughs> tough on opening day. Yeah, I think I parked somewhere in Over the Rhine before Over the Rhine was uh, what it is today, and and we walked down. But in a, and and then I think I the, I started covering it as like a sidebar guy, probably in the mid '90s. Um, you know, really, people ask me my most memorable opening day. It's the John, the tragic death of John McCherry. I. At that time, at, at Riverfront, you could see the game from the dining room that kind of overlooked. And I had happened to walk down there to get a drink or something. And I can remember just looking out the, the window and seeing him walk back. And, and you right away tell, oh, man, something's going terribly wrong. And we all know how it turned out. And you were covering the game at that point? As yeah, some I was kind covered. Of side? I was, yeah, we would send and still do send a five, six people to cover the, the game. And it, the odd thing was I, I, I knew John McSherry just a little bit. Um, there used to be a bar next to the Enquirer called the Cricket. And he would come in there after a game sometimes. <laughs> and he, he knew some of the older guys I knew. Um, and I, I met yeah, him You were once. a young guy back then. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was only 23, 24 years old. Um, but he's a funny guy. He, he had some great stories, and uh, just a just a it just was just a surreal thing to see that happen. And then I remember covering the press conferences afterwards, and it just uh, it just something I'll never forget. Yeah, that was one of Marge's worst moments. I think she didn't exactly uh, rise to the occasion there. How about when you're a beat writer? Did you ever get to see the parade? No, no. Or no. you're covering the you're you're in the clubhouse, you're on the field or whatever before the game, and just yeah, uh, the, doing those kind of things. Yeah, for, for for beat writers particularly, it's just it's totally out of the ordinary. Um, when you're covering a game, usually you get there. The clubhouse is open at three thirty, so you get there at two thirty three, and kind of go into this daily routine, but. Opening day, it's completely different. The clubhouse doesn't really open. My whole thing on opening day, it's always like, how or, how early do I want to get there? Because there's really not a lot to do before the game as there would be with with, with a normal game. Um, a lot of times I'd be going on WLW or some other show, so you get down there early and kind of kill time. It, I, I, I always enjoyed opening day because – when you're covering the beat, you've been at spring training for six weeks, so you don't see any of the other media for a lot of time. So, you you know, you make some old acquaintances and um, see some people that don't come there on a, on a, on a regular basis. But it, yeah, it, it, 
it, it is kind of out of the ordinary and it's just a, it, it's sort of a weird time because again, you've been at spring training for six weeks, you're coming and then you, you know, the season's starting. So you've, you've just gotten done with spring training, which is a, oh, it's kind of a grind. And then the season's starting. So, you know, uh, particularly when I started on the beat, I used to do almost every road game. I think the first probably 10 years I did 72 of the seven or 81 road games. So you're, you're getting ready for the long haul. So it's, it's just a, it's kind of a baseball has it. It's, it's sort of a natural calendar where you, um, you know, by the time spring training comes around, you're ready for it. And then spring spring yeah. training starts to starts to drag a little bit. Um, and then the, the spring training games start and then they really drag. I mean, uh, spring training is a long deal for, for players, for the media, the whole thing. I, I, one of my favorite things at spring training, I think it was Danny Graves put it on. It was the last day of spring training and he was, uh, he played over and over again. You got me, babe, which is a yeah. song that Bill Murray wakes up to every day in Groundhog Day. So it's, I thought that was that was a great gag, but anyway, then then you know towards the end of spring training, you're looking so forward to opening day. So uh, it's it's just it's it's part of the the natural kind of calendar of it, and and then you know once you know opening day is over, it's like oh here comes the grind. We've got the big 162. So it's 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 a it's it's a good day, but it's also a day where you're thinking oh here now the real stuff starts. Yeah, I always wondered what what do the players think? Do you have any idea? You know, there's all this hoopla going on outside the ballpark. Do the players inside actually even know what's going on outside the ballpark, or do they, do they have a real sense of how special it is the Cincinnatians as opposed to maybe in other cities? They do. Um, the one thing you always like new guys who come to the team. I remember talking to Sonny Gray last year because they were trying to figure out who was going to be the opening day starter, and he was certainly a candidate, and just talking to him about it. And he, he said, you know, whether I start opening day or not doesn't really matter to me, but he, he had heard. He said, I've, I've heard that opening day in Cincinnati is something else, and it's, it, it is. I, I, I think, you know, you, you get a lot of talk about people who are still ticked off that the Reds aren't the first game of the year, which – as you know, goes back to Marge not wanting to be a Sunday night game. And I, 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 I think that is absolutely the right move. I, I, I just don't think it, it can have the same feel if you started on a Sunday night. But Well, particularly Easter that year. I mean, they wanted the Reds to start, which was a little ridiculous. Yeah, I just – I think people around baseball, when you remind them that the Reds open at home every year, they're, it, it kind of – sets them back a little bit because towards the end of spring training, you're always a, a writer from another studio saying, Hey, where do you guys open? And it's like, uh, well, at home every year. And it, that, <laughs> that's, that's a big deal. I mean, I, I, I think people in Cincinnati don't realize what a big deal that is that baseball allows that. Um, and it, I think the Reds make some other concessions on the schedule because they get that. That's it, it's 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 a pretty big deal when you can kind of plan that every year. Oh yeah, it's like no other no other team in any professional sport. And uh, uh, often, um, the Reds would open some have someone's home opener, which everyone else refers to because they they don't open at home every year, but. 
it can be like a weekend of the season. I, I can remember going to Philadelphia when they opened their new Citizens Bank ballpark. The Reds were the team that opened there. I think they also opened uh, PNC. So it, it's a week later. So it, it's just kind of odd when you think about it. They've already been playing a week. If you, if you think the Reds would have opened a weekend the last year, or even sometimes it's it's nine or ten days, they would have opened the season one and seven or one and eight or whatever. So there's, right. there's a different feel to the season <laughs> when, when you played six or seven games, and uh, depending on how they go. So yeah, I, I think uh, I, I tell people that that you know that people should be happy that it's just still here and, and it open they open at home every day whether they're the, the very first game or not well hey you know one of the big years it sounds like um 2000 or so when griffey uh came home did you cover that opening day oh yeah because i yeah. think that's one of the biggest ones in terms of media coverage of all time yeah basically I, w- I wasn't the main guy that when that season st- – that was the last year I wasn't the, the main Reds guy. And my assignment was at spring training was Griffey for like the first week I was there. And that's all I did was follow Griffey, write about Griffey. <laughs> he, got, he got really sick of me. <laughs> I don't know if that John, ever that can't off. happen. Yeah, Nobody that, can possibly get sick of John Fay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I, I guess a little take, bit of take, well yeah, yeah. we haven't asked laura but okay yeah yeah or take a clubhouse survey but yeah i mean that was just a huge deal i i think uh the, the fact that they were able to pull that off and we all know that it didn't work out anywhere near how well they hoped it would be but this guy was uh, even though he was from here and he was the best player in baseball at the time i think because he played in seattle people weren't that familiar with him or hadn't seen him play that much, I guess you would say, because obviously the, the time difference, there weren't a lot of their games on here. And you, you just had heard so much about this player. And, you know, he was only 29, 30 years old at the time. And just the, the things he had done and just, just an incredible talent. So I, and I think on top of that, him being a hometown guy, it was just a huge deal. I just the anticipation and uh yeah, that that was a fun one. I don't I don't think there was ever any more anticipation for an opening day than that one. I mean, him coming home, I can remember that press conference. I think all the TV stations broke in when yeah. Carl Linder and Jim Bowden introduced Griffey. But then the game was kind of a kind of a nothing event because they it was lousy weather and it got rained out after four and a half innings. Yeah, yeah, that's sometimes sometimes the, the, the game itself is anticlimactic a lot. <laughs> right. A lot of times. But yeah, the press conference, anyone who was elected to any office in Cincinnati was at it, from dog catcher to mayor. It was and it was in the old Crosley room, which was their the one room they had where they could do something like that at Riverfront, and it was just unbearably hot and packed and it was just a uh, just a, a weird deal. Um, but yeah, I think that the anticipation and, you know, maybe the fact that it got rained out was an omen of what was going to come. <laughs> maybe so. Well, let me digress a little bit. How was your relationship with Jim Bowden? You know, the guy, uh, Marty Brenneman is not real fond of, he calls him old leather pants. Jim was the GM of the 
Reds, who brought Griffey to town, uh, worked under Marge, and then worked under Carl Lindner. Um, how was your relationship with Jim? It depended on the day and what I had written recently. I, he was a uh, he f- flew hot and cold. He was he would be mad at one writer, or mad you know, happy with another, and he he, he played you against one another. Um, he. I, I will say the one thing about him is he dealt with a, a a pretty difficult situation. Remember, he had that year where he ran the team. Marge was suspended, um, and and the thing he tried to do is to to make the most of what he had, and they didn't. Spe- he he tried to do a lot of innovative things, and a lot of them didn't work out. I mean, um, and, and some did. And I, I think as the, the pay – one thing to remember about the Reds, in 94 and 95, they had one of the highest, if not the highest, payrolls in baseball. Um, right. That was before the, the money has, had exploded. I think it was them and in, in the Blue Jays uh, before the Yankees had kind of – the resurgent happened with the Yankees and they sp- started spending all that money. So Marge allowed him to, to spend – uh, pretty much on payroll then and, and bring in some free agents. Well, then when the, the playing field got tilted a little more to the other teams, he made moves that became more and more, I would say, almost desperate or tried to figure out how to bring in guys that, that weren't as expensive. And he took a lot of chances on guys who were on the comeback trail and, and people like that. And, a lot brought of, in Greg Vaughn. Yeah, that, that that was a great move. That was one that worked out. But I'm talking a little later when he brought in like Ruben Rivera, guys <laughs> who had a great resume or were five tool players at one time that had really never done it. And uh, you, they were always trying to piece together a pitching staff. That, that's been – since. I always, you always think it's just a recent thing, but that pretty much goes back the whole time of the Reds. For oh, I think it's the entire years. history of the Reds, practically. Yeah, yeah that, I always point out the eleventh, the the top ten guys in WAR on the, for the Reds are all position players, which is amazing that, that that one guy didn't sneak into the top ten. So, yeah, and I I think he he did a lot of that. He uh, he was just an an odd guy to deal with. Uh, I think in, in, in some ways he was ahead of his time. He, he tried to figure some things out, um, but some of them backfired. And, and he just he, he would rub people the wrong way, including me at times. And uh, I've gotten along with him fairly well since he's been out of it. Well, you know, we talked about uh, Griffey, John. I think another interesting opening day was the year that the Reds traded for Sean Casey. Yeah, Tell us about yeah. your memories of that. It was, it, the thing was, it was in 98, and that was the, begin, that was the beginning of that rebuild. Um, was, you know, they had made the, the NLCS in, in 95. Um, again, the payroll was, was cut back, and so they're, they're, they're starting the rebuild. Dave Burb is supposed to start opening day. They trade for Casey. Uh, the, thing I, the, the one striking thing I remember is, Mike Remlinger started that day. Was the Mike Remlinger starting wow. pitcher? And I can remember sitting in the dugout talking to him. And he, you know, this, this, that's a, that's it, it, it's 
a big deal for any pitcher to start any opening day for any team, but to start in Cincinnati and find out the day before was a huge deal. And I, I can rem- remember talking to him about that. And then the other thing is meeting Casey, and you're like, where's this guy? Is this guy from Central Casting? I mean, just he was a, <laughs> the nicest, most outgoing guy I, I, I've covered ever. Um, and just a, a great guy. I, uh, yeah, he became the mayor of Riverfront, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, the, the thing about Casey what, that he would do is he would learn everybody's name. Um, he wanted to know the ball boys and uh, he, he just was just that genuine of a guy. My, my favorite Sean Casey story is uh, I, we were in Atlanta and Laura had made the trip with me and we were eating lunch and Casey came in with these two older people came up and said hello and everything and went on, you know, and so I come in the clubhouse um, for the game and he's like, Hey, Johnny, Johnny, come here. He goes, I, I, I'm, I'm so sorry. He goes, I, 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 those were my, uh, his wife's name's Mandy. Those, those were Mandy's uh, grandparents. I, I didn't know their names, so I couldn't introduce them. I'm like, <laughs> like, I said, Casey, there's probably 18 guys on this team that would have walked past me without saying hello. But that, that's just the kind of guy he is. And uh, Yeah, I, under, I, I enjoy still watching him on the MLB network from time to time. Yeah, and I, I think that – you know, back to Bowden a little bit. They get Casey to play first base, and then they trade for Dimitri Young, who's basically a first baseman too. So he, that's kind of one of the things he did. He, he, he was really he, – he just tried to accumulate players and then try to figure out where they were going to fit in. You know, they had Paul Canerco for a little bit too. So it, it, uh, he, he, was, he was enamored with guys – numbers and things like that and wasn't as concerned about how they fit in so uh you know the right. thing the thing they get casey in uh 98 and think oh we're starting this rebuild <laughs> and you get this 99 team and they kind of catch fire and uh so that that then they shift the plan again so that was that you know people well, talk about now when they they've, they've shifted plans a little bit they shifted it back then pretty drastically after the what happened in '99, which was totally unexpected. Yeah, that's that's the year they brought in Deion Sanders. Uh, you know, another guy that Bowden's trying to you know make a silver bullet, I guess. But hey, hey, John, let's jump back to opening day a little bit. With we've had a couple uh, pretty big appearances on opening day. We had Vice President Cheney one year, and then we had President Bush uh, became the first sitting president to throw out the first pitch. Did you get a chance to meet those guys, interview them, anything like that? Not Cheney, um, not at all. <laughs> but Bush, I, I remember when he was coming, uh, like a White House press person calls and says, um, we'd like you to be in the clubhouse when President Bush comes through and um, – you'll be on the list. And I'm like, you, you know, I'm a sports writer. I'm, I cover the team. I'm not. And they said, no, that's, that's what they want. So yeah, I, I can remember um, him coming into the, the clubhouse and we were all standing around and shaking his hand. It was the first time I ever shook the hand of a president. I've, I've seen a few um, <laughs> very personable guy. I remember where I was standing, I was real close to where Kent Merker was and he knew 
knew something about Ken Merker, whether he knew that he was from Columbus or, or, or something like that. But the thing about Bush, uh, the guys who covered Texas when, when he was an owner there, um, I think Tracy Ringlesby and, and some of those guys said he, he just loved to sit around and, and talk baseball and uh, just shoot the bull with them. So he very personable guy, uh, po- politics aside. But yeah, he, he was a uh, it was it was really cool to to see that. I, I had actually been at the World Series um, after nine eleven when he came through uh, at Yankee Stadium. Um, which oh, was wow. a, a huge deal. I didn't meet him that time, but yeah, that was, that was a big moment for baseball. Now, when they have somebody like that, like Cheney or Bush, does that cause a distraction in your work at all covering the team? Yeah, not, 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 not greatly. I mean, it obviously you, you have the whole secret service thing. I remember when Cheney was there, we didn't do the, I, we didn't do the second inning because he, he was coming in the booth and, um, they had all that that kind of stuff going on, so we uh, didn't do it that year. Um, I, and I, I, I'm pretty sure on this, and I, I can't quote him, but I don't think Marty was a big fan of Ch- the Cheney deal. But um, <laughs> <laughs> if memory serves, yeah. Well, we'll talk about Marty in a bit. Are there any other opening days that kind of stand out in your memory? You know the. Joe Randa's walk off. Um, he was the, the guy they brought in in two hundred three. Was I think Dan O'Brien, one of the guys he brought in. Um, that's a pretty big deal for a guy to hit a home run to win a game in, in, in his first year with the team. Oh yeah, and uh, there was a Ramon Hernandez walk off in two thousand eleven. That that was under Dusty Baker, and Dusty Baker always called. Hernandez, Clutchman Money. That was his name. <laughs> Dusty had his own names for people, but we always got tickled by calling him Clutchman Money. He was a pretty good hitter in, in in those kind of situations. Then 2012 was Votto signed his contract or his, agreed to oh, his just, contract right at the end. Just days of the before the opener. Yeah, and the press conference. I think was the day of the, or maybe the day before the opener, but yeah, that, that was kind of a big deal. And I think at, at that point there was such optimism uh, for, for the 2012 team. They had a, you know, a really good team. Um, and I, th- I think that was, you know, kind of off the opening day subject, but that was the team that I really thought had a chance to win it all. And I think they blew that series against the giants, but, I think that affected everything going forward with the Reds. Uh, that was the team that I think they were the best team in baseball at that point. They had the great rotation. They had a really good lineup, uh, just everything you needed and a, a good bullpen, and it just didn't work out. I think if it, if it had worked out and they had won or at least made the World Series, things might have been different. Since, oh, so. would have changed everything. I mean, yeah. I remember them winning two games out in San Fran. We think we're cruising to the championship series and then the, just the disastrous three games at home. So, Hey, John, you retired after the 2015 uh, season or tried to, what what made you come back to covering the Reds other than just pure hard cash? (laughs) It was insurance basically, (laughs) you know, my, my, uh, 
my wife is, you know, very publicly been dealing with breast cancer. And I was just at that time, I thought there's a little uncertainty. And I thought, you know, I bet I've got to go back and get the best insurance I can. And, you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't like I, I retired. I, as you mentioned in the opening, I worked for WCPO. I probably did about half the games that year, went to spring training. So it wasn't, it wasn't a huge change. Um, you know, getting back into it, it it's, it's, it's not like I was going back to uh, breaking rocks. I was going back to covering baseball. So, uh, yeah, I, and, and I, I don't regret it. Um, Cause I, shortly after I came back, uh, I basically replaced Trent Rosencrans who moved to the athletic and uh, Zach Buchanan was working with him who Zach Buchanan replaced me. Well, Zach left shortly after I came back. So I was on my own or, you know, they, they helped me out with the, some of the guys on staff. And then we ended up hiring Bobby Nightingale, who's uh, who I've been working with since. And he's just a, I call him a kid. He's much younger than me, but that doesn't make him a kid. I think he's 28 years old or so, but he's done a really good job. And I, he's one of the, the, the better young baseball writers. He really gets it. He's, uh, you know, we do a podcast and he, handles all the technical things on that and everything. So I, I, he's been a great guy to work alongside of. Yeah. Well, let's digress a little bit from opening day, I guess. And we've mentioned him in passing, Marty Brenneman. And we talked about your, you know, somewhat effort to retire. Marty's now retired. I had a great podcast with him a few weeks ago for an hour and a half. Uh, do you think Marty will ever come back into the booth either as a visitor or do a few TV games or a few radio games? I don't think so. I, I think, in, in fact, um, during the press conferences, that was one of the things I asked him. And, and I think, to his credit, he knows it, if he comes back, it's going to put so much pressure on the guy that replaced him. And it's, it's unfair to say that Tommy Thrall will put, replaced him. They, they've kind of shifted things a little bit. And uh, I, I think Marty's just he's, – he'll be around. I, I wouldn't rule out him stopping in the booth, but I, I, I don't see him calling games ever again. I, I think he made a conscious decision again. If he, if he goes on TV and does some games, people are going to say, oh, you know, it was great when Marty did it. Why, why isn't he doing more and, and that kind of thing? So I, 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 think, uh, I, I think he'll be true to his word and stay away from it. Um, but he, before things got interrupted, he was at spring training quite a bit, um, just taking in the games. And mm -hmm. uh, How was your relationship with Marty over the years? Oh, God, it was one of the highlights of my career. I, uh, he, he could not have been nicer. Uh, and, and aside from even the second anything, he was always, he always uh, was really great to the writers. Um, the thing about Marty is when he enters the clubhouse, you're like, oh, we're going to be entertained. He, he's a funny guy. He, uh, everyone knows he's opinionated and uh, he's just, he's, he's always been, really good to me and, and the whole second inning thing was just uh it was it was just a lot of fun um well tell us about the second inning thing do you remember like your very first appearance <laughs> in the second inning with marty oh yeah yeah i was scared to death and 
you sat on a stool that was a little above him and it was Joe at the time. And, you know, Marty liked to get on everybody and, and kid with everyone. But <laughs> so I sit down and I'm nervous. I'm squeezing the microphone like it's going to, I'm, I'm going to crush it. And he's like, I got you now. I got you. You're mine. I'm going to, you know, and he, he goes on and, and Marty's I can hear him colorful way goes on and on and I'm just sweating bullets. And <laughs> as soon as it, and the whole thing that really it, it, it's hard to get used to is he's talking, he's saying whatever he wants and it's the microphones are all there, but it's not going out over the air. He's trusting Dave Yiddy Arm Brewster a lot. <laughs> so right. to, to me, I'm like, how does he, how, how does he know that this isn't, but, but then the light goes on or you'd cues him and he's like, Oh, and welcome John Faye and could have been nicer. And the thing that I think made the second inning work really well is it was a conversation. Um, right. I, I didn't feel like I was on radio. He made eye contact with you. He, um, he wasn't afraid to let you talk during a play if the play was inconsequential, but if, if it was just a, a ball or a strike, he could catch up and he, he let you finish. And it, it, uh, it, it really helped me to learn kind of the beat of it, how to boom, boom, you talk so long, then you stop. Um, and I, I think it, it, it really worked out well. But one of the cool things was is it, it's one thing to, to sit and have a conversation, but when the ball's in the air, it's, it's, a, it's just incredible to watch him when all these things are going on at once and him perfectly describing them. Um, oh, he's one of the great play-by-play yeah, guys yeah, of all time. And the thing I say about Marty is I've heard him do basketball. And he's, he's an incredible basketball guy because the action in basketball is a lot faster. And Marty can, Marty can talk really fast and, 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 and he, he just, it, it was, it was great fun. It was, a. uh, uh Something I'll miss. I, th- I think the second anything is going to continue as, as far as uh, we know. I, it, it, we didn't get to that formal part because spring training never got that far along this year. But, uh, yeah, I, and, and we've talked about it between Marty and I. I'm surprised other teams haven't incorporated it um, because the, the beat writers have a different um, job and agenda and relationships. So Marty would be in the clubhouse every day because he'd do the, the pregame show with a manager, but a lot of times not a lot of players were around and he, he didn't interact with the players much before the game. So a lot of times we would have stuff and have talked to people that he didn't and uh, look at things differently. So it, it, I think it worked out from both sides. You know, I, 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 I got a ton of feedback. Some people only know me as the guy who was on in the second inning, <laughs> right? Know, where it was a, it was three minutes of my job uh, a day. So, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Hey, John, I know he always welcomed you in the second inning. He'd say, "We'd like to welcome our good friend, and we hope yours, John Fay from the Enquirer." But then, you know, he he started calling you the bank president. Uh, what bank did you own? Uh, all these years, <laughs> I heard that you were the bank president. Yeah, that went back to when I started the beat, and pretty much still the 
you would take weekends off at home. So I was taking off. That was when Marty was doing all the games. So he would get on me about that. And that was our, our good back and forth. And, you know, I'd say the guy, the guy making fun of my working hours, the guy who plays more golf than Arnold Palmer and, you know, <laughs> go back and forth on it. But the, the great bank president story was, which, by the way, he dropped that nickname when he started when they started adding people to the rotation, he started taking off games. So he, he, he had, no, <laughs> had no room to talk in that case. But Yeah, he started having some banker's hours, huh? Yeah. So, But anyway, I have a bunch of friends that coach uh, youth football. And I was up, visited them one day up at the park when they were having practice. And, I, you know, the two I knew really well I was talking to, and they went off to do their stuff with coaching. And this other guy that I don't know comes up to me and goes, you know, I'm thinking about refinancing my mortgage. Can you help me out? Like, <laughs> the guy, he actually the guy, thought you the were the bank president. The bank president. So uh, <laughs> my, my buddies who witnessed it, we, we reminisce about that every once in a while that uh, this guy really thought I was the bank president. Yeah. And I know that uh, Marty had a good relationship with you, but he also had a good relationship with your wife, Laura. Oh, yeah. Always Tell us about that a yeah. little bit. I know there's a good story about Marty and Laura and you. Yeah, the very lovely Laura. He, uh, yeah, he, he just, uh, that, that's what he always referred to her as. And, um, you know, she'd go on some road trips with me and uh, we always enjoyed our time spent with Marty. Uh, one of the, the great, the, uh, the hotel bar in the Westin where the Reds stay in, in Chicago. And uh, I finished up work and I said, you know, where, where, where do you want to meet for dinner? And she said, well, I, I stopped in the bar and Marty's down here. And he, Marty didn't make a lot of appearances in places like that. So we ended up spending some time with him down there and it was just unvarnished Marty. Just, uh, just, it was, I, I don't think I ever laughed that hard in my life. Uh, just him. <laughs> talking to the fans that came by the same way. And, you know, it just, he, he, Marty could have been an actor. It, it just uh, the way he, uh, he can take a gag and act. He would say, oh, and he'd say, don't, don't approach Joe Nuxall like this. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't like to do, have anything to do with fans, you know, which was totally opposite. Fans would buy into it. It was just, it was just, <laughs> it was just uh, he's just a fun guy to be around. Oh. I think, I think all the, the the traveling party will will miss him dearly just uh just for the entertainment value uh you know he'd come in our little oh he's a classic yeah yeah he's 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 just one of a kind i mean he's a great announcer a great guy just uh he's just one of the one of the treats of being around and, and the other thing was it was it was marty and joe when i started and if you grow up in cincinnati and you, you're You've been around Joe Nuxall, such a legend, and and he he was such a nice guy also to me. Um, and Joe's kind of intimidating looking guy and everything, and he just he he couldn't have been nicer to me. It's like mm -hmm. I'm doing this in my home office, and when I uh, when I retired, or I don't, I don't think it was a, even when I retired, but when the Reds had the All Star Game here in 2015. Um, I, I suggest that we have Jim Borgman, the retired editorial cartoonist for the Enquirer, do some 
read stuff. He's a big baseball fan. I said, if we just get him tickets, he'll, he'll do it. So anyway, we reached out to him and he did some stuff. Um, and after he was, he had done it. Um, I, I, I knew his brother, um, who's a year younger than me and actually went to school with my wife. And, and coincidentally, we ran into one another in Cancun. We were down there for a wedding and he was down there with his wife who was at a convention. And I just, Hey, brother's name's Tom. And I started talking to Tom and I said, you know, Jim did these things. I said, if he could just send me some of the worst ones, I, the ones he wants the least. So about a month later, I got this package from Jim lives in Colorado now. And the three things he sent me were these, you know, the original drawings, the last thing he ever did for the Enquirer were Pete Rose, Johnny Cueto, who I covered. Pete Rose, obviously the most iconic red. Right. Joe Knoxall. So they, they're hanging on my wall in my office. And I, I always tell my uh, nieces and nephews, uh, when we pass, don't, don't throw these away. <laughs> <laughs> All the stuff I have from my days of covering, they're, they're the most valuable. Just a, I was going to say that might be the most valuable possessions in your house. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it, and, and and it was like the perfect three because Quato I covered and he he was a he was a fun guy to cover. Um, difficult to get to know because of the language barrier. But I was going to uh, say, did you even understand what he was saying? He he spoke he speaks enough English. Um, you probably took Spanish at Elder, right? You probably uh, I, pretty I good at Spanish. I, I, I should have. I should have, but I didn't. <laughs> I, I took French, and I, I can't understand any of that either. But uh, <laughs> the, the thing with Cueto and a lot of guys, they will do interviews uh, for print with without an interpreter, but they, they, they don't want to be on TV because uh, they're afraid of looking silly. Um, right. So uh, yeah, I I could get, I could do pretty simple interviews with him. I, I think that the, the key with all that is to keep the questions simple and and uh, but yeah, he communicated enough with him. But you, you you just don't get to know the guys who don't speak English as well as you do the guys who do. Yeah. Hey John, you know this has been a lot of fun today. I wish we had more time. I hope to see you at one of the local watering pubs over there on the West side, maybe bump into your champion sometime when it reopens. Yeah. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. One of our city's finest, John Fay and his recollections about his career covering the reds opening day. And of course, with a few stories unrelated to opening day as well. I hope you enjoyed listening to John. And in coming episodes, we will have other special guests and explore specific periods of opening day history as the city has turned opening day into a celebration that has grown exponentially to the current scene that sees citywide celebrations for our one-of-a-kind holiday. This is Randy Freaking signing off and, in the immortal words of Marty Brenneman, so long, everybody.